Hello and welcome back to Australia. It's the and annual, biannual, possibly we do this a couple of times a year now. Um, annual discourse down under this week or well, this time. It's just the two of us. It's just myself and Professor Carol Cusack, who is also freezing in this cold, wintry evening. Carol, hello. Hi, Ray. It's good to talk to you. We have our cats to keep us warm. Yeah, mine are not leaving me very far behind. At least they're quiet. This is the main thing. <laughs> we are going to talk to you for the next 25 or so minutes about uh, interesting news items that have been happening in Australia related to religion and government and social aspects. Um, some of them are very exciting. Some of them are, um, well, some of them you might think are just happening around the world and are just sort of a little bit, uh, oh, how, how could you say, I don't want to say je ne sais quoi, because that's probably the completely wrong term, but uh, they're a little bit uh, samey now, I think. Some of them, though, if we were in certain parts of the world, we might say needed trigger warnings. <laughs> and you're going to begin, I know, with the federal government in Australia's intention to ban Nazi symbols. Yeah, there's a strain, the government's... Um, the way the federal government and the state governments work are the states get to sort of dictate what laws we have ourselves. So there are certain state governments, uh, New South Wales and Victoria in particular, who have already banned certain hate symbols, uh, the swastika being the big example. But the, the attempting to really drum it home uh, with a federal bill. Uh, our own Brianne Fallon, who could not be here with us this evening, uh, was actually in front of the government um, hearing board, what, two, three weeks ago, um, in order to testify. She's now, uh, when she's not busy doing RSP stuff, uh, she is working at the Sydney Jewish Museum, the Holocaust Museum. Uh, so she's really sort of got a quite a connection with this, so to speak. A lot of it sort of came about, especially... Uh, there's a anti uh, it was a trans rights rally happening in in Melbourne or well, it was around Australia it was what's her name Kelly Kelly K Kelly K Jean Kelly Kelly J Keen Minshall is That's her name she's English English she thought she'd come over here and tell us what we should be thinking we didn't appreciate that very much um, but once she got to Melbourne the rally that was a let women let women talk rally fronted by by uh, this Kelly K Jean. Ended up getting a um, a visitation by the local neo-Nazi party, uh, who hung out in front of Capitol, the Capitol building, and a few uh, Nazi salutes went on. Uh, there was a Liberal parliamentary member uh, who was caught up there, and I think she's now been booted uh, booted out of the Liberal Party, uh, which is the opposition party in in um, both Australia and Victoria. Which she tried to say she was just at the rally, uh, but the, the, I think there is actually a photo of her on the on the on the government building steps with the, the Nazis. So I don't think that did her any good. Look, it's a very complicated issue, though, because I have to say, whatever we think about trans rights, what we're seeing here is a phenomenon that grew up under the pandemic lockdowns, where people that would probably never have actually got together or wanted to do things together, 
turn up sometimes on the same podiums and it's because of the desire, I guess, for media coverage in particular. And the I think, Ray, you probably need to tell people a bit about the extent of the Australian right. It's probably also worth pointing out that it's a lot less connected maybe to mainstream Christianity than the American right. And also perhaps also the unique place that Victoria has in nearly all of our political battles. Yeah, well, the, the strange thing about, about Victoria is it seems to be the one place that everyone seems to be congregating within these groups, uh, which is sort of interesting. You know, like the, the Antipodian resistance and um, all these groups, which are basically not so much Christian nationalists. We've got a few of those, which Carol's going to talk about in a, a little bit later. But these these guys, uh, the the right in Australia is more akin to wanting to bring back the white Australia policy, which was a, a thing up until the 19, what, 1960s. Late 1960s, early 70s, yeah. the majority of it was repealed under Gorton in the late 1960s and Gough Whitlam, the Labor Prime Minister, repealed the absolutely last skerrix of relevant legislation in the mid-70s. Yeah, the, these people are all about uh, anti-immigration, anti-rights anti for people who aren't white. They started when the, the pandemics really kicked in. Uh, as Carol said, a lot of these groups sort of started meeting up and con combining forces. So you had the anti-vaxxers, you had the flat earthers, uh, you had the anti-government types. There's a lot of the um, lot of the the groups uh, are anti-governmental. We've still got a few that are still floating around now um, who are very uh, anti-government. They're the ones who believe that our government is full of Luciferian Freemasons and pick it out the front of government house. We call them foilers or cookers, and uh, they uh, are run by a guy who calls himself Guru. This is, this is the Australian equivalent of the Q, uh, the QAnons over in, over in the States. Uh, they believe they have all this secret information and that if they say the correct words, the Governor General, who is uh, the Queen's representative in Australia, will, dissolute, will use his powers to dissolve Parliament and they will then take over the government and run it properly and accordingly. Can I just say that I think Luciferian Freemasons are a lot less interesting than lizard overlords, but basically the principle is the same really, isn't it? It's also a good band name, I think. Luciferian Freemasons. Yeah. Yeah, I we're think Safari Freemasons. We're here to rock. Definitely you. start a band with that. Okay, so where have we got with the banning of hate symbols? Well, it's uh, up in up in the federal government parliament now under a uh, criminal amendment code for the prohibition of Nazi symbols. It's it's in the uh, the let's vote on it phase of things. So they've had the submissions over, yeah, yeah. So they've had like everyone sort of have had the submissions and the people talking about it and arguing, yay or nay for it. So now it's up to the government to sort of really step in and and uh, do something. I think new date for the bill to go to Parliament's about August. So they're going to sit on the submissions for a while mm. and really sift through them. I actually think that this is one. I don't know. I'd be interesting to know if you agree with me. I think this is one that it'll be hard to find anyone to vote against. Like the only real 
defense is the free speech, free association mm. defense. You know, if you can ban a swastika, does that mean that you can ban a cross or a, you know, some other kind of religious or or patriotic symbol? And I personally think it'll go through both houses of parliament. But I don't know. Do you agree? We've got. There's already things like the um, free association ban in Queensland for if you're wearing um, colours, so you know for for bikey members and that kind of thing. So there's there's definitely like this has definitely happened before, and maybe not in, in so much for something something like this, but definitely for certain groups of people. So yeah, I mean it'll definitely go through. I think just just means that they have to change their uh, symb- symbology. It's not as if they don't have a lot to choose from. Um, if it really comes down to it, uh, do, do you think the government knows what the Aryan Nation flag looks like? Or no, I suspect they don't. That's actually a very good point. The World Church of the Creator, or you know, pick pick any any um, Nazi associated or affiliated group from the states or from Europe, and you know, they can argue that it's something else, and yeah. Um, but hopefully, you know, uh, I'm not entirely sure who else was at the government house sort of talking about this stuff. But, you know, hopefully they sort of mentioned those groups and their flags because that'll be the next thing to pop up. Well, some of our colleagues who are in kind of the people who I know, because <laughs> they're mostly as, at least as old as me, you're a, a new generation who used to be religious studies people but have moved into securitization and anti-terrorism, people like Greg Barton, I think they've been involved in some of these negotiations. I think the big issue here is um, the Jewish community made probably, unsurprisingly, the most impassioned case that these symbols should always be banned, should never be allowed. And we move forward from that position. I think that it will pass. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Okay. Well, I have been thinking a lot about the ugly cult word recently, partly because a lot of people who work in the field of new religious movements like I do primarily, and in fact, Ray, when he's not doing religion and politics, does as well. He has encyclopedic knowledge of all the people in Australia who claim to be Jesus Christ, which I think is pretty funny. Um, There's at least three at the moment. (laughs) Well, what I was going to say was that the cult word thing has become quite important, partly due to the Me Too movement, which I obviously as a woman have some have, will have very significant sympathy with. But what it draws attention to is that new religious movement scholars have, often, have always been uncomfortable with the word cult and have said, well, look, you know, cults are just religions people don't like. And any religion, you know, these things can happen. And it's some, just something that tabloid media use. And it's something that we as scholars should really completely avoid. And I guess probably until about five years ago, I would have said yes, completely. I agree. No, we shouldn't use that word. If we do, we put square, scare quotes around it. But Me Too brought up the whole issue which had also arisen as part of the Royal Commission in Australia into institutional child sexual abuse, which was about shouldn't we believe the victims and the people who say that these terrible things have happened to them and shouldn't we 
give credibility to their testimony. And one of the things that nearly all of the people who exit high-demand religious groups or new religions, though some of them are old religions, say, I have been in a cult. And if I'm going to be decent to them and make it clear that I am really listening, it's completely the wrong thing to say, I'm sorry, dear, cults don't actually exist and you're kind of imagining that you were in one of these things. So when we think about really strange and awful things, I'm going to talk about two things here, both from Queensland, because Ray's first item on the Nazis is mostly Victoria. That's where the right-wingers are. Queensland's an interesting suburb, uh, interesting state. It's on the east coast of Australia, up north. It's hotter than we are. It used to be a suburb, uh, sorry, a state. I really am feeling a bit tired. It is Friday night. It was a state where people used to go to retire because it was warm and nice and less expensive than Victoria or New South Wales. During the pandemic, it changed its demographics significantly and enormous numbers of young families moved there. And in fact, it's pretty active, humming, buzzing sort of place now. However, the two stories I have are stories that maybe nobody really wants uh, to be part of. And they're both kind of cult stories. And they're cult Christianity stories. So the first is the death of a little girl called Elizabeth Rose Strews, who was eight. Her family belonged to a group that only called themselves the Saints and were very poorly known in Australia. And the case came to media attention when Elizabeth Rose, who had diabetes, died aged eight because her religious community denied her the medicine that she needed. Now, this is in some senses not entirely unique, is it, Ray? No. Uh, I mean, I can think of a few religious denominations that refuse uh, medicine and medical care. Um, But also just within Australia, there's been a couple of sort of examples of this uh, religiosity over medical advice. Well, it was an important issue during the pandemic, of course, because there were religious groups who proclaimed that they didn't want COVID vaccinations and stuff like that. But the situation with Elizabeth Rose's death is a little bit unusual because the Queensland police didn't only arrest her parents. And I think this is very interesting for the cult narrative. If a child's parents can determine what happens to that child, then should the child die in a situation where medical care was needed, then it's the parents' responsibility. But the Queensland Police actually arrested 12 members of this religious community, and this was because I think there was this genuine feeling that maybe the parents wouldn't have done it if they hadn't been part of this network, this web of people supporting the idea that the child's diabetes could be cured by praying for a miracle. She didn't really need Western medication. A little bit of a a group think, I guess, as well. You know, you get located in an echo chamber 
and just getting reinforced and reinforced and well what ends up happening happens and then you kind of have to deal with those consequences well the media coverage was also i think a bit confronting for a lot of australian christians because the group that her parents belonged to weren't really well known they were a very small church community but the community appeared to believe even after the child died that Elizabeth Rose would be reborn, would be resurrected, would come back to life if they prayed hard enough. Wasn't there a, um, a similar case happening um, a couple of weeks ago in Kenya? That was that, that group, yes, the church group that um, engaged in extreme fasting. Yeah. believed that it wasn't actually going to kill them, that they would, in fact, be spiritually stronger and better through that kind of overmastering of the body. Anyway, what I, I just wanted to bring up this particular situation because obviously Elizabeth Rose herself, the eight-year-old, who is dead and who cannot and did not become resurrected, is a victim here. And we have to think about what her victimhood means. Her parents have been charged with murder, which is a secular crime. It's it's not a religious offence. But nevertheless, they have charged other members of the community and arrested them and became involved with them because there are more minor kinds of offences that might be brought um, I mean, the thing is, the poor child didn't actually die instantly. It took her six days to die. And the members of the church who stood by and prayed and supported the parents and so on um, have been charged with lesser offences like failure to provide necessary medical care, uh, neglect of duty of care, and those sorts of things. So that's my first group of cult-like or cult-ish inward-looking Queenslanders um, who are presently engaged in trials for various civil offences because we don't have trials that you can conduct religious offences in. Mm. But the other group that I wanted to talk about are a group that I know, Ray, you too have an interest in, which was an independent Baptist community that spawned an incestuous love triangle that ended up in a shootout on a remote farm in Queensland. Now, could I make that sound even more sensational or is that like about as far as you could get. I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty good, you know. Incestuous love triangle ending in the shootout. Uh, I think it sort of says everything until you kind of remember that these the uh, they're also um, like a weird brand of of sovereign citizens and had. Um, yes, they claimed yeah. to be indigenous, didn't they? Yeah, I still think yeah. that's a uh, um, very much in a um, Pauline Hanson kind of way, which is a. I was born here, so therefore I'm Indigenous. Well, this story is pretty amazing. Like it's it's one of those things that you just couldn't possibly 
make up, or maybe you could if you were a very imaginative novelist or screenwriter. It begins with an old pastor called Ronald Train, as in the thing that you ride on public transport. He sometimes describes himself as an independent Baptist. He sometimes describes himself as a free evangelical. He himself is terribly distressed by the activities of his sons. And I've seen several interviews with him on television and online, and I think it's it's a very sad situation for him. Um, His two sons, who were called Gareth and Nathaniel, had this strange situation where they were brought up in this very extreme form of predestinationist, masculinist Christianity with a high emphasis on defending your own community, which implies also armaments and so on. It's worth pointing out to our international listeners that it's not as easy to get guns in Australia as it is to get guns in, say, the United States, for example. But if you live in rural areas, most rural Australians have legally licensed guns on their properties. Anyway, Nathaniel Train, the younger brother, married a woman called Stacy, and they were very, very, very young, barely out of their teens. And the elder brother, Gareth, was not happy about his brother's marriage. And for years, the three of them moved around together. It's not quite clear at what point um, Gareth Train, the elder brother, became Stacy's lover and began to kind of take her away from his younger brother. But they lived on a variety of remote or relatively remote properties. And eventually, Stacy officially was no longer with Nathaniel, but was with his brother, though despite the strict evangelical background, there were no divorces or remarried marriages. Anyway, they ended up together on a farm in Queensland, and there were young police officers who were sent to check up on Nathaniel Train, who was said to have been in fragile mental health. The brothers had actually been reported as missing persons, and Stacy, the wife of Nathaniel, who was by that stage and had been for some time the lover of Gareth, uh, they were all on police alert lists as persons of interest, shall we say. Anyway, the police came to the property and there was a shootout in which the trains killed police officers at that point. And and a poor, unfortunate neighbour who wandered over to see what the shooting was about. Exactly. Well, if you are a neighbour and you see these, you hear these really strange things happening, noises, shots, etc., and you wonder, you know, what is actually going on there. The two police officers were killed in mid-December last year. The neighbour 
on the same day after he came around, Gareth Train had posted online. There was a whole lot of social media posting here. He argued about the fact that he was building an ark to survive tomorrow, whatever that means. He distrusted what he called cowardly police and the re-education camp ideology of schools. Very interesting. All of them had been involved in high schools and were qualified teachers. And this is really, really interesting because, as Ray says, these guys claim to be Indigenous. And to be Indigenous in Australia means a certain thing. And it generally doesn't mean that you're a white, independent Baptist with apocalyptic expectations. So do you want to say something more about the fact, the kind of soft-sit people we have? They're not like the Americans. They're a bit different. But Well, they're, they are a wee bit different, but they still use very American terms and uh, Americanisms in order to sort of really um, push their agendas. Um, uh, a lot of it actually stemmed from, um, I can't think of the guy's name now, it'll come to me at some point, but he was an American. He came over here and started going to um, indigenous settlements and spooking uh, Sobsit ideology in these indigenous settlements. Um, in far north Queensland especially, there's, there was a case of an indigenous man who was using his own passport, like a um, like an indigenous passport, um, to come into Australia, sort of going, oh well, you know, this is not my country anymore, so here's my passport to to come and visit if I'm off my land. But yeah, it's sort of it's it's definitely getting, um, especially after the pandemic, it it really took off and got to a it's it's still to a strange strange site. It's where all these people up in Canberra, they're currently all in Canberra. Um, protesting the government house and the parliament house and um, the governor general's house and all that kind of stuff. The, I saw a, a video the other day where they're now claiming that Charles is actually a Catholic and that they've just inserted a an imposter's crown on the on the fence of of government of um the governor general's house and the, it's all wrong because these things point inwards and not upwards. And I'm sitting there going, you can read into this any way you want. I mean, I, I don't think Chuck is, is a Catholic. That whole being in charge of uh, the Church of England really kind of puts a kibosh on that. Stranger things have happened, but, uh, yeah, no. I, I, don't, I really don't think uh, he, he's much of a Catholic. It's an interesting issue, isn't it? Like, there's two things going on there. I really like the fact that you mentioned the guy from the US who was spooking Solsit stuff to Indigenous people. Mm. Um, again, because I happen to be much, much more ancient than you, I remember when Michael Mansell, who was a major Indigenous activist in the 70s and 80s, um, his background was Tasmanian Aboriginal, he developed an Aboriginal passport. And the most interesting thing that he did on this Aboriginal passport, which was in fact a bit of a sort of slate of hand because he had an actual Australian passport as well, was that he went to Libya when Muammar Gaddafi was mm. in charge and Gaddafi allegedly recognised the Indigenous passport that Mansell had um, manufactured, I suppose, is the right word. So you've got the Indigenous people who want to secede and want to have their own passport and that's one thing and that's a particular kind of self thing. 
But these people are the so-called white Indigenous. Um, and it's interesting because this is a kind of bridge into our third item um, because John Safran, the Australian journalist um, who is secular but of Jewish background, um, has written a book about many of the people in this milieu that I think you're going to tell us a bit about. Yeah, John comes into this sort of indirectly because I kind of wanted to talk about the fact that in Australia this year we have lost two major figures in the Catholic Church. Um, we had um, Cardinal George Pell who died in what, March. Yep. Everything is just so it was so blurred together at the moment. I can't Time believe it's June. And um, and just the other week was uh, the death of Father Bob McGuire, uh, who is you know like a big um, social justice warrior, so to speak. You know, he was actually a um, you know did did what the church should should be doing, which is looking after people and caring for the poor and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but Father Bob got really famous through John, um, who. The easiest way to describe John Safran is he started out in a provocateur. Yeah, he was definitely a provocateur. He got really famous for for goading a um, an Australian journalist uh, so much that the the journalist, a guy called Ray Martin, punched him in the face. <laughs> um, and that was like the the first um, uh, the first big thing that John was sort of known for. After that, he got his own television show, his own radio shows. Um, did a series in the early 2000s called John Safran versus God, uh, where he went around and um, basically tried out different religions. Um, he he, he um, um, tried to join the clan uh, by saying that he was more Jewish than than um, he was more Aryan than Hitler because uh, he was blue uh, had blue hair uh, blue eyes and blonde hair. Um, the clan were not very happy with that. Um, he introduced Father Bob to the world by um, through Catholicism because uh, he, so he wanted to sort of maybe convert to Catholicism and Father Bob ran him through it because they were from uh, similar areas in, in Melbourne. Um, and Father Bob was on Triple R, which is a radio station in, in Melbourne uh, for a good long time. And um, then um, John gave him a, a, a TV show. Was, um, John, Father, John, uh, Father, Father Bob and John Safran just sort of talking about things. It was really, really fun. And interesting, but um, in 2017, John wrote a book called uh, "Depends What You Mean by Extremism," where he actually investigated and gave he, he gave fair fair cop to him. He actually had to go at every, pretty much everybody. He, he didn't nobody was um, off limits. He didn't really have an agenda or a bias. He was just well, everyone's a bit you know um, skewy. Um, what did he describe it as? Like 18 months. Through sort of the weird groups yeah. all over Australia. Yeah, he came to he came to Sydney and, and hung out with uh, the Australia First Party, uh, whose headquarters is actually just down the road from me. Uh, he hung out with um, Antifa leftists in Melbourne who didn't like him because he was Jewish and they're very Palest uh, pro Palestinian. Even though John himself is you know very much not Jewish, um, he, he himself has said that um, he went to a. He went to a he went to a party, um, like a, a party with a bunch of of um, neo Nazis who thought he was there to spy on him on them. And yeah, it's it's a great book if you if you get a chance to find it uh, overseas. I highly recommend it. It does look just predominantly at um, the Australian milieu, 
but um, it is definitely worth a read. is is very very good. But that said, um, the deaths of both Bob and and Pell um, really sort of showed a, um, a quite a schism within the Australian, especially with Australian political community. Um, when Pell died, he got a state funeral in Sydney. Uh, he had uh, former prime ministers turn up, and one of them, uh, the Tony Abbott, gave a eulogy, calling him a great man and, and a that, saint, and a saint, and all this sort of stuff. And um, Father Bob, uh, when he he was forced to retire, and his very last sermon, what ten years ago, was standing room only. Like that's how much this guy was revered and loved. Um, he used to he used to tread tre- used to trend on twitter all the time just because he you know people were making sure he was still alive because that's how much people cared about him um but his he got a state funeral um in in melbourne uh which is you know where he lived his whole life and but his his you know all the all the higher ups from the from the opposition party sort of stayed a little bit mum about him the uh the the government who is in charge at the moment the labor party uh i think albo our prime minister went um, and, and Dan Andrews, Dan Andrews who is the leader of the Victorian um, party who's currently in charge, also went, well, he's the one who organized, made the state funeral arrangements. Um, and yeah, it was just sort of like, you know, they're, they're both 80-ish, you know, well, Bob was 88 and um, Bill was 81, 81. So, you know, both came up, they've both been, you know, done amazing things for their careers and their respective churches and, but only one sort of got all the the attention from from half of the political world. So, yeah, I think that it's a really interesting one because, of course, I I mentioned earlier about the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sexual Abuse, which we did a whole big, you know, discourse thing about a couple of years ago. Um, Pell, of course, was a hugely controversial figure because he has been accused and, in fact, convicted, though the conviction was later um, appealed, um, of actual child sexual abuse himself. But I think another thing that's come out of the Me Too movement and also the whole move around exposing child sexual abuse is that it doesn't really matter, as far as I can see, whether Pearl himself did abuse actual boys when he was in a position of power in the Catholic Church. What really matters was that there is no doubt, there is absolutely irrefutable evidence that he knew of many priests under him, people who were part of his fiefdom, shall we say, within the church, and he knew of their abuse and liked the situation that we know of in Boston from the truly amazing film Spotlight, which I think some of our listeners may have seen, and I recommend it totally, thoroughly, amazingly if you haven't seen it. It is just brilliant to see how these things got buried without people even realising that they were colluding with criminal activity, but not just criminal activity, because one of the things about child sexual abuse is that it just wrecks many of the people who experience it and they never really recover. And so I think for those Australians who aren't right-wing Catholics, Pell 
was somebody that we really didn't have any investment in. Mm. And his death was more a question of, well, how does this guy get a state funeral, really? So Bob Maguire, on the other hand, was the sort of person who clothed the naked and fed the hungry and housed the homeless and had no particular um, worry about whom he associated with. He was out there on the streets working with sex workers, with runaway teens, with homeless Vietnam vets, our Australian homelessness situation was exacerbated terribly by our participation in Vietnam and the fact that most of the vets who returned had severe PTSD and also heroin addictions, which made it very difficult for them to reintegrate into society. So the Father Bob George Pell deaths in the same year and the media coverage is is kind of interesting from that point of view. Mm. Yeah, I think even the media coverage just in general, like you could tell the difference, like the different papers as well, like who was running the different papers when covering the different uh, deaths, which is also, you know, I guess, you know, it's slightly media biased, but, you know, we should be used to that by now. <laughs> Again, for people who don't live in Australia, the Australian is a right-wing paper. It's um, a broadsheet uh, intended for a more... Um, learned sort of audience and the telegraph is a tabloid that is also extremely right wing both owned by uncle rupert yes rupert murdoch of course possibly australia's most toxic export to the rest of the world and of course i'm one of those people who thinks really the only journalistic outputs that progressive and left wing people read are the guardian or the Australian Broadcasting Commission, but even sometimes there are there are issues there. Which brings me to just our little coda. This has been a very Judeo-Christian-centric kind of episode because the Nazi symbols thing mostly fits around Judaism and anti-Semitism. My cult stories from Queensland are both Christian groups with extremist tendencies anti-Western medicine, sovereign citizenship and arms, stockpiling, hostility to the law, race. Bob and George story is about the Catholic Church in particular and even John Saffron, who's a secular Jew, fits still into that Judeo-Christian matrix. But just in the last few days, really, right now, um, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, who of course is well known for his Hindu nationalist viewpoints, has been in Australia. And this has been an interesting and also divisive visit for the Australian Indian community, which after all, not all Australian Indians are Hindus. And many of the Australian Indians who are Hindus are more liberal and more open-minded and less hostile to members of other religions than Modi 
and his supporters would be, for example, in the subcontinent itself. So we have had some awkward photo ops. Speaking of. <laughs> the, uh, well, you're looking there lovely with the cat. Yes, but I'm dealing with the cat. But, yeah, the, uh, our uh, Prime Minister, I don't do much with, the, with um, body language, but, yeah, I don't think he, uh, he's, he's much of a hugger. Well, I think if the person you have to hug is Narendra Modi, maybe that's more the point. But it is kind of amazing that there is this enormous groundswell of support for him amongst some Australian Indians. I mean, he actually had an enormous gathering at one of the big Olympic stadiums and crowds gathered to welcome him. 20,000 people were at one of the stadium gatherings. Yuck. Indicating that it's interesting to think about the way in which people who are non-Judeo-Christian and yet religion religious in Australia actually pan out, like politically, and I think this indicates that there's some really right-wing stuff happening here. Well, I think it's happening around the world. My uh, little conversation the other week with Brad Anishi, I think, really sort of got into that. It's just a lot of it comes from uncertainty. You know, it's just everyone wants something to believe in, so they gravitate towards something sort of intense or so you know, a lot of it has to do with strength and trust, and that's where they go. Oh well, you know, well the strongest thing here is going to be Trump. We'll we'll support him. Um, or you know, the strongest thing is, I mean, how long has Modi been in, in charge for? Modi's been, been in a power while for now. a long time. But I mean, that's also an interesting thing to raise, Ray. I'm glad that you mentioned it because, of course, the current situation in Turkey, yeah, which sees. Recep Tayyip Erdogan potentially maybe in a less secure position than he has been. And he has been the lead. He's been Prime Minister. Modi's been Prime Minister of India since 2014. That's nine years now. Erdogan has been Prime Minister of Turkey since 2014 too. I'm starting to wonder if there's something in the water in 2014. <laughs> And it's it's interesting. There does seem that there are democratic and pluralist and more open-minded forces gathering against these kind of authoritarian leaders. But I don't know if it's clear yet whether they will prevail. Yeah. I mean, only time will tell on that one, I think. Especially with, with Turkey, there's it's reading that Twitter – is now turned off. Uh, if you if you say anything against Erdogan, it doesn't get actually get like, doesn't actually get posted. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, I think Muskie likes a little bit of authoritarianism. So. Good point. Good point. So, given that it's Friday night, are we going to say we've done what we needed to do for the RSP this evening? I think so. I think that's a, another discourse done and dusted for. So at least six months. We'll give it another go in six months and see how we go. Bringing it to you, RSP listeners from Australia. Thanks, Carol. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. 
The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening. Thank you.